Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Ying Wang, head of APAC Energy and Utilities and China Research Initiatives at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Alvin Chen, head of fixed income portfolio manager from Fidelity International. Alvin has been with Fidelity at its Shanghai-based Wolfie since 2016 and he has witnessed the global asset manager's growth story in China. Elvin is also a Fitch alumnus, having worked in Fitch's Shanghai office from 2013 to 2016. He also worked in equity research and management consulting earlier in his career. Elvin, thank you very much for taking the time to join the podcast. Fidelity International is one of the world's largest and most renowned asset managers. Perhaps you can give the audience a very quick introduction on Fidelity's presence in China. Yeah, thanks, Ying, for the warm introduction. And I feel very warm and happy to be back and see many familiar faces. Um, yes, I joined Fidelity's plan to grow their China business in 2016. I recall that uh, when I just joined, uh, there was about 12 colleagues in the office by then. Uh, we got our China mutual fund license around end of 2020. And now there is well over 100 professionals in the office. It clearly shows our commitment to this huge market. And finally, uh, we are planning to launch a series of bond funds invest in China onshore market in 2023 with a diversified risk return profile. That will be very exciting for me and for the team as well. Congratulations on getting a mutual fund license. I look forward to the debut fixed income product from you and your team. I think your timing with product launching is pretty good because China's economy is on a growth recovery trajectory this year after moving away from stringent COVID control measures, which severely disrupted economic activities and dampened growth in 2022. What are your views on China's economic prospects and policy directions in 2023? Can you share with the audience what are the key investment themes for fixed income investors in China this year? Yeah, thanks. I think 2023 is a very special year. Um, I see 2023 as a normalization in many aspects, a comeback from a very challenging three years for China. Uh, primarily, I think you will see a clear restart of mobility, and not only for daily consumption, but also more strongly uh, for business needs. Uh, take my real-life example. Um, we are having more global visitors in 2023, uh, comparing what we have in total from 2020 to 2022. Myself has also been in traveling more frequently across China um, to clients and to the company that uh, we invest. Uh, there are some structural issues still in the economy. I'll probably talk a bit later, but there is a fundamental difference here. Uh, secondly is the property sector, uh, which has been deeply underwater in 2022. It has also seen a lot of recovery since then. And uh, From data, we see a buttoning out of both price and sales volume. And not only from tier one tier two city, but also from tier three cities and even lower tier cities, uh, driven by both price cuts and the lower mortgage rates uh, for the property sector. Uh, we are yet to see a strong pass through the land market on a national level, but in strong coastal provinces, we are starting to see the mix in land purchasing to get better. Not only LGFB are buying land, but commercial property companies are also starting to buy more land. Finally, I think accordingly, uh, the monetary policy will also normalize comparing to the past three years. Uh, we are seeing seven-day ripple rates to constantly below 2% in the later part of 2022, uh, but that really happened in 2023. We are seeing China gradually exiting a very loose monetary policy. With that, I think in China onshore bond market, uh, we are seeing more opportunities in credit versus rates. 
we wouldn't expect the CGB rates to go much lower from here uh, from overall rebounding growth. But in general, I think the creditors do offer a very good carry. Thank you, Alvin. Um, so what do you see as potential risks to China's recovery trajectory, as well as to the potential credit opportunities that you just mentioned? What are you watching out from a risk point of view? Yeah, um, for a fixed income investor, we are always very focused on risks. I think risks are both in internally and externally. Uh, first, internally, um, I think we still need the government to be active in the fiscal policy to support their 5% growth target. Despite um, the positivity I just uh, just mentioned, there are still quite some structural issues within the demand. Uh, take consumption and property recovery, for, for example. We're actually seeing a K-shaped recovery, uh, where the recovery are being fairly uneven. Um, take a restaurant, for example. We're seeing that for a lot of remaining ones, they're starting to having long queues, and uh, as much as we have in 2019. But that is partially because the su supply is crippled. If you go to some relatively suburb areas of the city, we're still seeing a lot of restaurants being closed. Same for the tourism sector. Uh, the ultimate question, I think, is whether the income of consumer is strong enough. Has they really come back to level before the COVID, especially for the lower income groups? The regional recovery in property sector is also bipolar, as I mentioned. So to have a sustained growth, we probably need to expect more stimulus from the central government. Externally, I think we are also worried about external demand. Uh, we are seeing already some banking sector risks arising from um, Europe and the US, and also a tightening financial condition where weakening confidence in the sector will probably hamper their future growth. Um, we believe that the prolonged and heightened inflation would also be bad demand for the sector. Um, despite we are seeing a very strong export growth in China for first quarter, but that comes from a very strong structural shift with a lot of weight shifting to ASEAN country and the north of China. Uh, but going forward, um, the stability of export growth due to be checked. Right. Since you mentioned policy tightening and inflation in external markets, I guess my next question for you is, how do you look at China's inflation picture? During the first few weeks after China's reopening at the end of last year, people were talking about potential inflation risk. And more recently, the tone has changed. More people seem to start worrying about deflation risk. Obviously, inflation or deflation will have much impact on the domestic CGB rates, which are currently well below that of the U.S. Treasury yields. Um, so maybe can you shed some light on this subject? Yeah. For top-line CPI growth, um, but probably didn't see too much um, inflation risk. Um, for China's inflation, it's highly impacted by a lot of like uh, food uh, price. Uh, it's mainly pork. Um, so for pork, I think China is still maintaining the supply very well. So we didn't see a very strong risk for the pork price to go much higher from here. And also, if we took the DM uh, inflation, for example, they are coming from two major streams. One is from service, and the other is from the property sector uh, for the property-related prices. Um, for services, I think it's also different across DM and China. Uh, for DM, um, there is a lot of like money printed from the central government to supply to the residential sector and to the normal consumers. But that didn't happen to China. So we are seeing less kind of pressure from there. And also coming from that point, um, a lot of people with their subsidy from the government has exited from the job market, causing a structural kind of uh, short supply in the labor market that caused a wage increase that also transmitted onto the service price. For China, the picture is like different. 
um, we are not seeing a lot of like a direct subsidy from the government um, to the labor, to the normal people. And also we are seeing a rise in terms of the employment rate. So we are not in a risk to see a structural shortage of labor in China's service market. So we are unlikely to see a wage increase in the service sector to kind of have pressure on the CPI. On the second hand, on the property sector, we are also not seeing a huge kind of a rise uh, in the rents in the housing price in China across the past few years as compared to DM. So that risk in China also is not as huge as compared to other DMs. So with that uh, in mind, we are not seeing a lot of full risk in China's CPI growth. In terms of PPI, I think um, for a lot of raw materials for the industrial sector, given that we are seeing a soften in the global demand for these materials, we are also seeing a price coming down with a lot of global commodities. So for China, I think um, inflation is probably still a not major risk. Uh, for deflation, um, I think it's also unlikely to happen in China. In general, what the, the scenario for China is that we are not seeing a recession here. What we are seeing is a kind of weaker recovery, but that is still a recovery. Uh, we are still probably witnessing something like a 5% growth in China uh, within 2023. And the monetary policy in China are still in a relative accommodative kind of position. So with these two factors, I'm seeing that um, the risk for deflation is also not very significant at this point of time. Right. That's very interesting. So we've talked about the macro picture, and now let's pivot to China's bond market, where your expertise is. China has the world's second largest bond market with a total amount of outstanding bonds in custodian at about 21 trillion US dollars at the end of 2022. And according to the People's Bank of China, foreign institutionals um, investments account for about 2.4% of China's bond market. So in your opinion, what opportunities can China's bond market bring to grow global asset manager, both in the short term and in the medium term? I think if you look at the long-term trend of foreign investment in the China bond market, this has been consistently on the rising since 2016. Um, in 2021 and 2022, we are seeing that trend to slow down given a kind of reverse uh, spread between the US rates and China rates but it's starting to coming back in 2023. So I will still probably in future, I will still expect China's bond market to be of good value for global investor. But there are several key drivers behind that. I think the most significant reason for that is that China bond market is still a very good diversifier uh, within the global asset classes. Take 2022, for example, we are seeing US rates going up a lot um, comparing to the previous years. With that, um, all the bond market in DM and also equity market, majority of them are making negative returns across the year. But China bond market is somehow sheltered from this risk. We're actually seeing a 3.3 return on the CNY terms across 2022. Uh, this is one of the few markets that still record positive return in that year. Even we consider um, the currency uh, situation, uh, the real return from the China bond market is still quite defensive comparing to a lot of global asset classes. That shows the diversification benefit of the China bond market. On the second hand, I think the volatility of China bond market are also very limited comparing to um, the other markets. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the major reasons is that um, at the current point, the major investor in the China bond market are still the domestic banks and domestic insurance companies. Um, they don't actually have too much alternative beyond the China bond market. 
So the money are actually sticky. So when the price become attractive, the, the money will always come back. That is a self-correction mechanism within the market to help the market to stable. So diversification benefit and also, I mean, the volatil low volatility are very good, are created a very good sharp ratio for China bond market as an as asset class. Um, despite that, in the short term, we are seeing a kind of a reverse uh, yield difference between U.S. rates and China rates, unlike most of the time in his history. But I believe that uh, with China growth outlook are still benign for the longer term, um, the absolute yield level for China bond market will still be attractive in a global context in a long-term perspective. That's very encouraging to hear. So do you expect an increase of foreign investors' participation in the China's bond market in the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. I think that's gradually happening. Um, and take our firm, for example. Uh, we are gradually adding allocations in China bond market for the benefit I just mentioned. And also, um, if you look at the current allocation of foreign money in China bond market, it's dominantly in the rates market. The current penetration and the credit are still very limited. Um, going forward, we are probably expecting uh, more investment in the credit market as well. For me, actually, I will see the China credit market to be even more attractive comparing to the rates, that they are as less volatile as the rates market, but they are also having additional kind of layer of return adding to rates. And if you look at the risk profile of China credit bond market, it's also a very safe. Um, I think majority of the market is actually composed by government-related entities, including the state-owned enterprise and local government financing vehicles. If you look at historical default rates for the state-related entities, they're also not very high. So you get a kind of decent return, and actually you still get a safety um, here investing in this bonds. Um, in addition, um, the liquidity of the market has also uh, increased a lot um, in the China bond market across the past years. So if you look at a high-grade um, China bond, uh, China credit bond, it is actually very competitive in terms of liquidity comparing to the U.S. dollar bond market. So I would say that um, the current limitation in the China credit market is that um, global investors do are not very familiar with the market. As they are I mean, more familiar with the market, we're probably seeing more money going to that as well. So as a portfolio manager focused on the China bond market, we are doing a lot of education to the global investors. Uh, we hope that um, um, this attractive market uh, will attractive more kind of global money for going forward. On the other hand, uh, we are seeing the government improving the global connection uh, in terms of infrastructure uh, in the past few years. Um, starting from 2016, we are seeing a lot of improvement into, into cross-border connection. Uh, we are having the CIBM Direct in um, 2016. After that, we are having the Bond Connect. So it becomes more and more easier um, for the global money um, to invest in the China bond market. Yeah, indeed, um, as you rightly pointed out, I think many global asset managers' exposure to China's bond market is still in the rates products. Um, their exposure to credit is limited to very high-quality names only. And based on my communication with some of them, the common challenge is that domestic credit ratings are homogeneous and do not provide enough granularity in risk differentiation and doing due diligence on individual credits on their own is costly and also difficult due to insufficient disclosure and transparency, um, also due to limited access to company management. Um, so do you see similar challenges further increasing credit exposure 
and especially going down the credit curve? Uh, yes, I think uh, I think what you mentioned is definitely the hurdles for the global investor to be more engaged in the domestic credit market. Um, on one hand, you mentioned that um, the domestic rating. Uh, yes, domestic rating um, definitely lacks diversification. Um, if you do a statistics around domestic bonds, uh, probably over 75% of the bonds are just in the AAA and AA plus rating. So um, what you have, so basically I mean, the system is, is a little bit of a concentrate in terms of rating and do not have too many diversification. So on that perspective, uh, we're probably um, the buy side's own rating mechanism is key. So they have to have their own rating system. So take us, for example, uh, we are assigning our own rates in a global rating scale to each and every bond we buy. So that's the one thing. I think that's the homework that buy side need to do. But I think encouragingly, uh, we are seeing the, the infrastructure to improve. On one hand, uh, we are seeing a lot of global rating agencies to come into the market and they're offering a different rating scale comparing to the legacy domestic rating scale. On the other hand, uh, we are seeing an increasing number of third-party, non-traditional credit research provider coming to the market. Um, I will probably won't name them, but there are a lot of of them are already well known to the market. So they are helping to improve the infrastructure. Uh, on the second hand, I think you mentioned the disclosure. Uh, yes, for a lot of domestic companies, uh, the disclosure from the bonds are still weaker than disclosure from the equity market. They don't have dedicated IRS for them and all the disclosure are just strictly in Chinese. Uh, but I also see that infrastructure improve as well. I think one of the reasons that um, the companies do not uh, have a lot of like um, this awareness in terms of investor relation is that um, the market was previous just dominated by banks. There was not a lot of professional investors in the market. But given the challenge for a lot of credit issuer um, to get enough investment from the banks, they are more and more reliant on the bond market. As they do so, they probably will need to improve um, their kind of investor relation in that perspective especially for a lot of high-yield high issue in China bond market. Through interaction, we're actually seeing an improvement of their communication to the investor. Another point I want to mention on the infrastructure, apart from the uh, disclosure and apart from rating, is the covenant. I think covenant is also one thing that's quite different across the uh, China offshore bond market and domestic bond market. In the offshore bond market, you are actually seeing a very uh, personalized, a very diversified a different um, covenant for credit across IG and high yield. Normally for a high yield investor, you'll probably get a better protection uh, from your covenant. Uh, but for domestic issuers, um, given that they are majority rated actually as investing rate in China, there is no diversification in terms of the covenant. So the protection uh, given to the investor for a lot of relatively lower rated bonds are quite limited. So. With that, um, actually, as a buy-siders, uh, we need to strongly push for improvement in that. So that would probably, um, we're also, I mean, with the common improvement, we're probably we're going to see more investors coming to the market, buying a lot of credit from China bond market. Yeah, I think you raised some very interesting points. And for many years, I see that the domestic um, bond market credit spreads have very little differentiation. Uh, at the same rating level, regardless of sector or issuer-specific fundamentals. But um, I also observed that in the last five or six years, as 
more credit events and defaults happened, the overall, you know, market credit spread differentiation seemed to be improving. Do you agree with this? Do you have the same observations? Do you think that this market, despite all the weaknesses, uh, shortcomings that you, you know, we talked about, has become a bit more efficient and transparent in risk pricing? Yes, I think the market has become more efficient and we are starting to see more differentiation in terms of like credit pricing. I think this is driven by two factors. On one hand, uh, we're actually seeing more defaults in the past few years. Uh, we are seeing all kinds of different um, entities going to default, not only private-owned entities, but also some uh, local government-related entities, including local SOEs. So the defaults actually are kind of uh, making um, the buy-siders and the investors to dig deeper into what the credit really is. So we are seeing the um, investors to be more stringent on their credit research. On the other hand, uh, the overall yield level of China bond market has come lower in the previous years. So for a lot of for more yield, the investor need to dig deeper. So as a whole, I, I will see that um, the, the credit research across investors in China has actually improved. Um, a lot of, almost all the buy-siders, they have a like, strong in-house research um, they don't only rely on public rating, they all have their in-house rating. So these um, in-depth researching are driving um, the credit spread from different companies to be to be very to be differentiated. For example, um, for the LGFEs, I mean people are not only relying on their financial data, but also um, they were strictly looking at their qualitative aspects like the linkage to government. So even for the same rich low government financing vehicle, um, the difference in your region and the difference in your linkage to your own government has resulted in a difference in your in your pricing. So I would say that's actually a good thing. I mean, for the market, you will have start to have differentiated um, yields for you to pick up. Yeah, I think that's definitely improvement. Earlier, you mentioned about no differentiation in covenants um, as a weakness of this market. Are there any inefficiencies and structural challenges? Um, that you think the domestic corporate bond market don't needs to address? Uh, yes, I think I think on one hand I mentioned the non covenant, um, the other is probably about the pricing mechanism. Um, that is that's both problem for both primary market and secondary market. In China, I think the primary market pricing is somehow uh, distorted by the heated dis- competition in the DCM market. So especially for a lot of SOEs, uh, it's very kind of a crowded competition to having a, a bond deal, I mean, from the DCMs. So the DCM will compete, I mean, on low pricing for the bond. So sometimes the pricing is distorted from their real value on the second-hand market. On the secondary market, I think the price is also not perfectly efficient. One of the reasons is that liquidity is somehow limited. I think um, in the China bond credit market, there is still lack of a real market maker um, position in this market. Unlike um, on the US dollar bond market, especially when you go down the credit curve, um, the liquidity becomes sometimes question. Uh, you, you need to hunt a lot of liquidity on your own, and there is no active market maker quoting the price in the market. So sometimes you will see that a lot of pricing for the bonds are outdated, and some are not really tradable price. So there is no kind of very transparent pricing uh, available uh, for the high yield in the market. So I think that's actually one of the key challenges we go down the credit curve in China credit market. Um, you mentioned LGFBs just now. This is a very important sector in China's corporate bond market. 
accounting for close to 10% of the market and more than 50% of the corporate bond market. LGFE definitely is an asset class you cannot ignore if you're going to invest in China's onshore corporate credits. However, I understand many foreign investors investing in offshore Chinese bonds actually avoid buying LGFE paper because it's an asset class they cannot understand. The underlying financial profiles of many LGFEs tend to be very weak and these entities receive funding based on implicit government support, which is very hard to precisely and quantitatively price. What is Fidelity's approach to investing in Chinese LGFE bonds? Uh, we do invest in LGFE in the both US dollar bond market and China onshore bond market um, because I think it's a very important component of China bond market. You just can't ignore it. It's just too big to be ignored. In terms of our GFE strategy, um, we divide it into both beta strategy and alpha strategy. The beta strategy determines how much uh, we invest in the sector compared to other sectors. So we will look at the both the valuation and look at the fundamental of the sector. So we will compare um, the LGFE's valuation uh, versus the other industrial sector at the same rating category. And so that's our valuation. And on the fundamental, in the sector perspective, we will strongly observe the policy trend toward the sector, uh, whether the refinancing policy is supportive or kind of restrictive to the sector. That will determine the market sentiment toward the, toward the sector as a whole. Um, further on that, um, we still have our alpha strategy on the LGFE. So on individual LGFE, uh, we do use a top-down uh, combining with a button-up strategy. For a top-down perspective, we mainly look at local government's ability to support. For that, uh, we look at the local economy, uh, the competitive strengths of its key industry. We also look at the local financial resources of this region. If the LGFE do need support, I mean, the first line of support actually most frequently coming from local financial sector. So overall, the local financial resources are very important um, strengths in the local economy as well. On the fundamental level, we also look at the population flow of the region. At the end of the day, we think that the strengths of the LGFE still rely on the local economy. So the population flow is a very strong signal of how attractive the local economy is. And finally, we will also look at the debt burden. We will look at that how many LGFE actually need to be supported by the local government. From a bottom-up approach, we do look at um, each and every LGFE's profile. The most important of that job is looking at the LGFE's role and its corners, whether it's a real LGFE or it is becoming less relevant to local government. Uh, we will look at its business kind of type. Um, is it undertaking a key task for the local government? Is the development trajectory in line with the local government's kind of future plan? We'll also look at the local LGFE's robustness. We'll look at their structure, um, such as the liquidity profile, at the cash flow, its coverage for interest, and also its, its past uh, management issue. Um, finally, I think what's becoming increasingly more important for us is to look at the ESG side of LGFE, uh, because I think ESG is becoming an uh, increasing important priority of the government. So the LGFE also need to do well on ESG. And also, I think for ESG, a lot of element really links to the sustainability of the entity. So I think companies that are um, doing, not doing well, for example, are not doing well on their governance, probably won't do well on the bond market. 
Um, so this has become increasingly important point for our approach look at LGFE as well. That's very, very interesting. I feel that we can spend a lot of time talking about LGFVs. Um, we probably need another full podcast session on that. Um, but before we wrap up today, an additional question on corporate bonds. How do you see corporate credit risk this year? Um, are there any sectors or market segments where you see value? Also, are there any sectors where you will be underweight? Yes, actually, I don't see too much systematic risk in the traded credit market, given that I expect the overall monetary policy is due to be supportive and need accommodative monetary policy is still need in, in this phase of recovery, which is still relatively weak. Um, take sectors, for example, uh, within LGFA sector, we just mentioned, I see both risk and opportunities. I don't see systematic risk within LGFE, but um, I think, as I mentioned, the land income are still weak in 2023. So it's resulting in a lower capability for the local government to support. It's kind of lowered the local government's ability um, to inject the money into their related entities. So there is a higher risk of technical defaults of LGFEs in the relatively weak regions. This will probably create a lot of market volatility within the sector. But when that volatility happens, I think there is always opportunity to pick up good uh, valued ones within the market. Now, on the other kind of interesting sector is property. I think a lot of property bonds are still have money. They have not yet returned, I mean, fully returned to where they were before the whole uh, property episode. But I will probably not go too long on the property duration. And overall, I think the short-term policy on the property market will probably still be supportive. A lot of policy will still be out on the demand side and also on supportive of the liquidity of the developer. But from a much longer-term perspective, I think the China growth engine uh, will definitely shift away from the property sector. So I will probably be, uh, not go very long on the duration of the property sector. But some short-term bonds do offer good carry. Thank you very much, Alvin, for your valuable insight today. We touched on a lot of interesting topics, and I was able to pick up many enlightening viewpoints from you. I am very grateful that you took the time to join the podcast today, and I wish you success with your debut product launching in the coming months. Um, any closing remarks you would like to make to the audience? Yeah, thanks, Ying. Uh, I think um, as a company, uh, we do have very strong commitment in China bond market. Um, I think um, not only from the local perspective, the bond market will remain a kind of a safe haven for local investors. It will always be uh, important as allocation unit um, for their investment decision. But going forward, its importance in the multi-asset investment uh, in the capital market will remain important. But from a global perspective, I think the market is somehow undervalued from a global perspective. The familiarity in China bond market is due not as much as compared to China equity market. So I think with a more attention to a China bond market, I'm confident that it will attract more interest in the market. Thank you again, Elvin. You have been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at FitchRatings.com. Please subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Take care until next time.